Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Today's guest on the Mike Wise Show started at center two straight years in the NBA Finals against none other than Shaquille O'Neal. He's one of the most self-aware and funny athletes I've ever known. The story he tells today about how he got on the Dave Chappelle show is beyond hilarious. And he's now a professional pinball player, one of the best storytellers around. I promise. We'll introduce you to him. But ladies first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? All right, guys, before I get into Todd McCulloch interview, I want to address this controversy in the NBA with China. I think it's the biggest uh, brouhaha I've been a part of in my 25, 30 years covering the league. And I mean, that surpasses Jordan retiring, the lockouts, the malice in the palace, uh, when the Pistons and Pacers brawled with fans, I, all that stuff. This is bigger than anything. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, you know, by NBA social justice standards, it reads like an almost innocuous tweet. Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. That was Daryl Morey's tweet. But because he's the general manager of the Houston Rockets, the most popular team in China since Hall of Fame center Yao Ming played there, those two sentences may go down as the most expensive two sentences in the three-decade history of the internet. And that's not an exaggeration. Sports business analysts are saying this could cost the NBA $1.5 billion or more, that it's already devalued franchises by millions, and is expected to affect future salary caps and could very well end the NBA's 30-year relationship with mainland China. And it's all because a team official showed solidarity with some of the world's voiceless, people who want independence from a brutal authoritarian government. That government, as we now know, condemned that tweet, Adam Silver's delayed support for freedom of expression, and any support for democratic reform in Hong Kong. Mainland China, we now know if we didn't already, has two ways to do things, their way and the wrong way. Now, as Chinese businesses refuse to sell NBA products, state te television has canceled NBA games in this barnstorming preseason tour to China, which includes LeBron and the Lakers and the Brooklyn Nets, by the way, that's been marred by a real ge geopolitical crisis. Adam Silver, a guy I like, respect, and peripherally have, peripherally have known for like 25 years, has had to answer the most seminal question of his stewardship. Is it still okay to be this woke if my league starts to go broke? <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to. His original response was no. The NBA originally took issue with Maury's tweet, said it doesn't represent the league. James Harden showing how unaware and uneducated many players are with China's atrocious human rights record, actually apologized to the government on behalf of the Rockets for Maury's tweet, essentially saying, sorry, Beijing, we don't support those ingrates in Hong Kong who want independence from your undemocratic nation. 
New Nets owner Joseph Tsai, a Canadian-Taiwanese businessman, verbally smacked Maury too. He minimized Chinese oppression by using a Facebook post to give a condescending history lesson on territorialism in China. Steve Kerr's response blew me away the most. Kerr, who, look, I've liked, I've known forever, just a, a good person before he's a great coach. You know, he's gone after a sitting U.S. president for his racial insensitivity. And his team has twice refused to attend a Trump White House champion celebration. But he went mute on the NBA-China divide when first asked, pleading ignorance. And, you know, to be honest, it was as if Chinese officials had originally scripted the NBA's response. And it had to be simply this. We disavow any connection to that rogue idiot in Houston who thinks the province of mainland China deserves to be free. Beijing basically said, shut up and dribble. And LeBron and the league shut up and dribbled. Remember, these are the same athletes and coaches who not only boycotted trips to the White House, but they wore Black Lives Matter t-shirts before games in solidarity for young African-American children wrongly killed by law enforcement. Everybody in the NBA, it seems, was down for the cause unless it conflicted with their wallets. And of all ironies, for at least 24 or 48 hours, most people in the NBA supported communism because it helped their own capitalism. Think about that. But I will give Adam Silver this. The commissioner got wise within a day. Facing incredibly ugly backlash at home, he quickly issued support for Maury in his second and third statements released by the league and thereby alienated the Chinese government. And even though it appeared as if he was putting his finger in the wind and deciding which way the economic winds blew, doesn't matter. The commissioner came to his senses, and the owners have now become resigned to the notion that it's better to piss off people buying sneakers in Beijing than in Boise or Bangor or wherever the hell in America you buy your shoes. I'm not going to eviscerate the players anymore or the officials of the NBA for showing hypocrisy in this matter before doing an about-face. I just don't want to hear how they remind us all of Muhammad Ali and Arthur Ashe, who went to South Africa at the height of apartheid to protest. That generation of change agents made it possible for this generation of change agents to speak their minds. They didn't care about the dollars. They were all about dignity. They sacrificed everything for what was right. So if there's one lesson to take away from this, it's that we don't get to be part-time social justice warriors when we sign up for this kind of work. We don't get to be outraged against blackface and then plead ignorance when some warped Cleveland Indians fan wears red face and a logo that looks like a Native American Sambo caricature. We don't get to be selective advocates speaking up for some of the voiceless, but not all. We need to self-educate with the people we do business with and understand that if their values run so counterculture to our own, then maybe it's time we either got out of the Beijing business or the social conscience business. Because when it comes to a place like China, you can't be both. All right. Thanks for letting me get on my high horse. Here's Todd McCulloch. Full stop. Thanks, Darlene. Today's guest is Todd McCulloch. I got to see him play in his prime. It was probably my prime as a writer, too. So, uh, Todd, thank you for getting up so early in Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Anytime's a good time for Mike Wise. Hey, Todd, your, your kids are sleeping right now, right? Kids are sleeping right now and got a little time before we got to get them up, get some lunches made, and get them, get them off to school where they belong. 
They're, how old are they? 11 and 9. Oh, man, you're in the thick of it. I'm, I, I'm an old dad. I got 9, 4, and 20 months. It's crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that'll keep you busy. Now, now, you, pardon my ignorance, you grew to 6'11". 6'11 and 13'16". Didn't quite make 7 feet. Uh, <laughs> nobody likes a quitter, but I just couldn't quite make it to that, uh, that level. But 7-footers are slow and plodding, so 6'11 and a half are agile and, and fleet of foot, so it's okay <laughs> that I stopped there. You, um, I, I look at the league now, and it's crazy to me. Not that the center position has completely been legislated out of the game, but I, you know, I wrote. I had the I had the good fortune of writing Shaq's autobiography like 20 years ago, and all he talked about was inside outside. And if you don't have a big man in this league, and and now it's like everybody's chucking from the parking lot. I, do, do you look? Do you even recognize the same NBA that you played in? Not, not really. And I, you know, I have those same questions that you did about whether a guy like me with my skill set would be able to play in the modern uh, NBA. And I, I, don't, I can't remember who I was. I was talking to somebody about, you know, what it used to be like. And and it used to be maybe you'd have trouble. You, you would have trouble guarding, you know, big centers, traditional back to basket centers, but in a different way. But every now and then, you know, guys like Kevin Garnett would come in the league. And now I'm. Now I'm trying to guard Kevin Garnett on the perimeter and he can put the ball on the floor and he can dribble and he can dunk and he can shoot threes. And, and that would be an extreme challenge, but that was kind of on a rare night where you had to, you had to play someone, you know, as talented and gifted at this height. And then now I feel like every team has one or two of those guys that I'm just thinking for a, for a guy like myself to be out there trying to guard somebody like Porzingis with, with that skill set at, at that height, and, you know, guys like Durant, I, I am really impressed. I mean, I always thought I was coordinated, but the things that those guys can do with the ball handling, the passing, um, and their leaping ability is absolutely incredible to me, what they can do at this height. There seems to be no limit to uh, to their skill set. I mean, I just remember being all of six four and a half, maybe six five before my disc slipped, that gr- growing up when, I, when my, I was 12, my folks moved to Hawaii, and Six five is a is a big man in Hawaii. I had to play center, and they would almost wait wait for me to run down the court like they did the chief in one floor of the cuckoo's nest. And 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 now and, and if I shot from far away, if I didn't make it, I was almost taken out of the game. Nowadays, I mean, you if if you can't shoot from from three and you're six eleven seven foot, you're almost it, it's a disadvantage. Yeah, you're kind of a kind of a dinosaur. I, I know my dad yeah. always wanted me to. He always wanted me to hit a three, and it just it wasn't expected of me, and it wasn't uh, wasn't something that I needed to do. But my my uh, one of my high school coaches thought it would be funny if if in an all star game he ran me off a double screen to try and get me a three. He thought it'd be funny. It was almost like a novelty. Like, hey, let's get the seven footer mm-hmm. open. So he runs me off a double screen off the baseline, <laughs> and I'd never come off a screen in my life. All I've done is set screens and I come off and I expect to be open after this double screen, but I wasn't that hard to guard. And then when I caught the ball, you know, ready to shoot, the guy was right there in my face. And so I had to double clutch it. Like I went up, I pumped and tried to shoot a one armed three and it didn't go in. We ran the play a couple more times. And the coach said, you know what? It's not, it's not funny anymore. Stop, stop shooting threes. Like it's, <laughs> the novelty is over. And then uh, in my last college game against, uh, I think it was against Washington State, and I had not hit a three or taken a three in uh, in college basketball. And then in one of the last timeouts, one of my assistant coaches came up to me. He's like, "Todd, if you uh, if you get a look, you can you can jack one up from three. And I said, "Really? Did coach say it's okay?" He goes, "Hell no!" And if you told him I said he could, I'll kill you. He did not have his permission, but I'm just telling you, if you get open, jack one. 
so it never uh, never quite happened for me. Did you win that game? Oh, it was the Cougars. Of course we won. Yeah. Oh, uh, Cougars beat Wazoo. That's a huge game up there. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it was, it's a good rivalry, but uh, we, we, came up, uh, we came up on top of that one. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, wait, wait, no. The Huskies beat Wazoo. That's what I meant. Um, yeah, the Huskies beat Wazoo. Yeah. So you're, uh, we're talking with Todd McCulloch, um, the retired NBA center, who's one of the most candid voices uh, outside of the game. You, I mean, you've, you, you'll say anything, right? So, so the great <laughs> thing about this program is you can swear, you can, you know, whatever you want to do for ratings, I need them. So you go for it. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, but you're, oh, I, I, <laughs> what I, um, uh, what I want to say is, you were from Winnipeg, Manitoba, obviously home to Canadian hockey country, and you grew up a basketball player. And you have a real international portfolio, having played internationally for Canada. Before that 2000 Sydney Olympics, the last time the Canadian uh, national men's team had made the Olympics was 1988, when our coach, Jay Triano, was a player. And, and uh, I don't think Canada has been back to the Olympics since, uh, since 2000. So that was a, it was a special team. And, of course, when you have a guy like Steve Nash, he makes everybody better. And we kind of, I don't think, we don't think there were super high expectations uh, for our team. Our goal at first was to just qualify because it was, it's, you know, of the 12 countries that make it, it's, it's, a, it's an achievement just to do it. So that was our goal. And then it was kind of like, all right, guys, now that goal was last summer. We're there. Now, if we're, you know, if you're going there and we're not trying to meddle, then we're, you know, we're, this is not just a vacation. This is not just a, it's going to be a wonderful experience, but let's, let's see what we could do. And uh, we started off with a win against host Australia, which really surprised people and got some people excited uh, back home. And then we beat uh, a good Spanish team and that got people pretty fired up. And then I think we beat Angola after that. And then we, uh, then we kind of made a mental mistake. We just, uh, the goal was to finish uh, of the six teams in each pool, two were eliminated after round robin play. And the goal was to not be fourth because if you're fourth, you're going to cross over, you're going to meet the, uh, the great American team and you essentially you're going to be out of the medal round. So the goal was, you know, first, second or third in our, in our pool. And uh, we sort of took Russia kind of lightly. We were rolling and that's it. We, now I remember and uh, we ended up losing. Actually, I remember we, I don't know, for some reason we had talked about it before the game and said, uh, okay, if we, uh, guys, as long as we win or lose by less than 16, we're fine. And I think mentally that's stuck in our in our head and we approached the game differently than we had the other ones. We thought, well, we can probably beat Russia. And if we don't, we're not going to lose by 16. And sure enough, here we are, we're down by 14 in, in the closing seconds and then uh, and then Russia hits a shot to go up by 16 and it was almost like a it was almost like a tie game at that point and we were feeling the pressure and uh, Nash took a shot at the buzzer and we missed it and we knew what happened if we uh, won by less than 16 and we knew what would happen if it was more we didn't know what happened if we'd lost by exactly 16 and so basically everybody talked and said oh Canada Canada's blown it they they lost to Russia and with the points for and against the uh, the Australia is going to advance, you know, assuming Canada use, loses to Yugoslavia, which, you know, which they will, and, and they're going to be fourth, and they'll be limited by the U.S. This is what some of the people in the papers were saying, and our coach and sports psychologist kind of said, hey, guys, if we go out and beat Yugoslavia, let's finish first in our pool. How about that? Let's shock everybody. So we went out and beat Yugoslavia the next night, which, you know, typically doesn't happen a lot in basketball. We finished first in the pool and then uh, made it to the to the crossover round and unfortunately ran into a, a red hot uh, f uh, team from France lost by five and uh, were relegated to the seventh eighth place game. So we, we wound up 
we won in a really nice role, and there was mm-hmm. a lot of excitement brewing in Canada uh, behind that national team. And, of course, uh, Vince Carter uh, was a super exciting player, did a lot for basketball in Canada, and really got a lot of those young players thinking about the future and had a big impact on the, on the type of player that's coming out of Canada right now. Well, and he, he, he leaped over Frederick Weiss in that, in that game uh, that I covered, he, he, and I was like, I never seen anything. I never saw anything like that in, I, in person. It was incredible. I, we were getting ready for a game. We were playing later that night, and so we were in a house full of basketball players and a couple of um, you know male beach volleyball players. And I come down to the room, and it's just a raw feed. It's just some camcorder yeah. set up on the basketball feed. So I'm sitting down there putting on my shoes, watching the game, you know, the U.S. versus France, and I'm down there by myself. None of my teammates are, are down there getting ready yet. And I see the play, and I, with my own eyes, I see it, and I think, did I just see what I think I saw? That's the most amazing dunk ever. But no announcers, no replay, no just a raw live feed like it never happened. And I'm watching this going, I want to see the replay. Like no one's freaking out. No one's saying. And then one by one, my teammates would come down, and I'd say, hey, guys, you just missed the best dunk in the history of basketball. And they're like, whatever, Todd. You're I'm like, no, you guys know Frederick Weiss? Yeah, he's my height. And Vince just jumped over, and they're like, well, he couldn't have jumped over him. He might have jumped beside him or something. I'm like, no, I'm telling you, you guys will see the play, and you, it's, it's unbelievable. So they, uh, you know, history showed that I was right. And a few years later, I was in Atlantis in the uh, Bahamas about to go down that, that slide where you get a free enema. I don't know if you, you go right through a shark tank. And I'm standing there, and this, this guy's like, hey, uh, didn't you play in the Sydney Olympics? I said, yes, I did. He's like, yeah, Vince Carter jumped over you. You're Frederick Weiss. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not Frederick Weiss. I played. Oh, oh, I wasn't, no. I've been mistaken for him, which was, you know. That's where, that's where you do the whole, like, what, what do all us white guys look alike that are seven feet? That's, like, crazy. All us, all us seven-footers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Tom McCulloch's my guest. Uh, the, the, reason I, the reason I thought that, that you had a disappointing run and, and you didn't was because I remember the writers at the time, Bruce Arthur and Doug Smith, longtime Canadian basketball guys, uh, they were just depressed. They were, I remember, the de- depressed in Sydney, and I, I thought, gosh, and they, they felt like, you know, you guys were on a roll. You could meddle. And, but either way, the fact that you went that far. Uh, Yao Ming um, was uh, drafted in 2002. He played. Do, do you, what was he like early on? I mean, what, how, was it tough to guard him? Was it? Yes, uh, it was. He was, uh, he was great. He was, a, you know, just a, a gentle giant and just a total class act. So it was a pleasure to play against him. Uh, a lot of guys at that height are, are pretty, pretty skinny. Um, and he always had a solid base. He had, you know, big, strong legs and a, and and wide shoulders. So not only was he, uh, you know, was he seven six and six inches taller than me, but he also had, uh, you know, really broad shoulders. Took up a lot of space and had a had a beautiful touch. And so he was uh, he was extremely tough to guard. And and not surprised that he went on to the kind of career that he did. And I'm 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 sad that his career got cut short because he was uh, doing great things and was going to do that for uh, for quite a bit longer. So it was uh, it was fun to to, to play against him um, just to see, you know, you had to try and beat him up and down the floor a little bit and try and. Um, you know, try and go from from A to B a little bit. You know, like you were talking about Chief with uh, one floor with the cuckoo's nest. I used to joke that that was my style as well. Just go park myself under there. So it was a uh, it was fun to play against him, and he was a he was a class act, and really cool to see him inducted into the into the basketball hall of fame. Do you, uh, do you keep in touch with him at all? Uh, don't don't keep in touch with uh, with Yao Ming. You know, with yeah. uh, with Steve Steve Nash a little bit, and uh, and some of those some of those guys, uh, Kyle Korver. 
Um, I think with the NBA not being in Seattle currently, I think not having that face-to-face with uh, with former teammates and keeping the the friendships going with the, the ability at least once a year to go out, I think I've uh, lost track of a lot of my teammates. Had a lot of great experiences and, and loved all of them, but I don't stay in, in touch with uh, with as many as I would like. I've uh, reconnected with uh, George Lynch a little while ago, and, mm. and every now and then uh, somebody will pop up and, and we'll, uh, we'll check in with each other, but I, I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, Todd McCulloch is my guest. Um, he's, he's uh, gosh, by now, uh, you're pretty much Seattle, Washington native. Are you an American citizen? I, uh, I am. I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen and a Canadian citizen and, um, you know, happy to, happy to be here and really, really like the yeah. Northwest. It seemed, uh, seemed very, seemed very Canadian when I came down here on a, on a recruiting visit and it just seemed like home and it's uh, not that far from the Canadian border. So it's nice to go up and visit my, visit my pops and, and have him be able to come down and visit the grandkids. So the, the Northwest is definitely, definitely home for, uh, for this guy. Do you, um, uh, do you have any, do you, uh, see Jamal Crawford around at all? One of Seattle's uh, it's, been a, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. I've always enjoyed uh, running into Jamal Crawford and really been proud. He used to come and uh, work out with us when I was at the University of Washington, and he'd come and, and just his skill set, his agility, his passing. I was like, wow, this kid is going to be really good. And he's uh, even when he, he was on. young. Oh yeah, even even when he was young. I think he was just still in uh, still in high school and. Uh, mm. Uh, from from Rainier Beach, and he used to come over and just light us up, and and just be threading threading the needle. And I sure love playing with guys that love to love to pass the basketball. And and uh, so I haven't I haven't seen him around the the city very much. I saw Brandon Roy a little while ago, and I had a nice little chat with him. And it was really cool to see how well he did at the University of Washington. And it was a shame that his NBA career got cut short because he was uh, an amazing talent as well. So there's some there's some really good players here, and uh, University of Washington is starting to starting to keep some of those local guys and really build the program up here. It's a crime that Seattle doesn't have a franchise. It's it's such a great, not only just a great city, but a great basketball town. Uh, I did you? I believe you played in the Doug Christie and later the Jamal Crawford pro am, right? The Seattle pro am for a while. Um, I I don't no, I never played. I used to work out with some of those guys, but I never played in that uh, in that a lot of organized stuff. Like yeah, you that. could you could tell I've really read Bruce Bernstein's notes on uh, on all the research I was supposed to do for your career. This is great, Bruce. Uh, my fault. Um, <laughs> but Todd, uh, uh, so this is the crazy part, and I've wanted to talk to you about this. I think more than anything else, um, I grew up on pinball. I'm I'm 12 years older than you, but I grew up on pinball. You still play. Uh, this thing is like a talk about dinosaurs the, with video games. This thing's just become one of these things that just sort of like went by the wayside. We don't even talk about pinball anymore. You still play in tournaments. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, play, I, I got uh, something right. This is good. I'm actually uh, playing in uh, playing in a tournament tonight. I'm going to a uh, an arcade bar here in the Seattle area called Flip Flip Ding Ding. If you can imagine what the, what that place <laughs> is all about. There's about 25 pinball machines in there and my. My friend Bowen Karens is in town. He's a Bostonian who's a five or six time uh, world champion. I, I first, uh, well, I didn't meet him, but I was playing. I didn't meet him at that time. I was playing for the Nets and uh, trying to prove my worth. And, and I was being heckled by a mathematician up in the upper stands. And I didn't, I didn't hear him specifically. I heard a lot of Boston fans yelling at me. I made the free throws. We won the game. 
And uh, a couple years later, I was heading up to Boston and I found out that this uh, six-time pinball world champion was a Boston resident and asked her friend, like, hey, do you, you know, do you think Bowen would show me a few things? He's like, dude, he's like the nicest guy ever. So I reach out to him like, hi, Bowen, my name is uh, Todd McCulloch. I uh, work for the Philadelphia 76ers as a radio analyst. And I was wondering if I, you know, if I supplied you with a couple of uh, tickets to a game, if you would maybe show me a few things. And so it uh, picked me up and... And uh, we went to a buddy's house, and he just showed me some things and blew me away. And um, and he's like, you know, I got to apologize. I a couple of years ago, I heckled you and I yelled at you, and I'm really. I was that guy. Yeah, he was that guy. So he's uh, he's in town, and uh, when he's in town, we usually go out to Flip Flip Ding Ding and play in a Thursday night tournament. So in the Seattle area, basically every night of the week, there is a pinball tournament where you'll go and compete against. 15 to 50 other pinheads. So because it's Thursday, we're going to flip, flip, ding, ding. Last time we went, uh, Bowen, it's three strikes, you're out. So you just go and sign up. And they'd say, you know, Todd, you and Bowen are playing this game. And hopefully I don't get matched up against uh, against him right away. And if you win, you don't get a, an X. And if you lose, you get an X. And after three strikes, you're you're out. And so uh, it was 1.15 in the morning. The last ferry back to Bainbridge Island was 1.35. And Bowen was still alive in the uh, in the three-strike out tournament. I'm like, buddy, if you want to crash with me on Bainbridge, we need to leave now. Otherwise, we're going to miss the boat. So he cashed out on uh, fourth-place prize money. I think he got 10 or 15 bucks and got his entry, entry fee back. And then uh, – and then, so the next time he's like, next time I'm going to crash with the Seattle buddy. That way I don't have to leave. And so at 1.45 in the morning, he was crowned the champion of the flip-flip tournament. And, um, yeah, so he's, uh, he's something to watch. He's like the LeBron James or the Michael Jordan of pinball, and it's just now, it's incredible. How, so How could you th – this is a hobby more than it is a profession, right? I mean, I saw you won a $3,000 cash prize once in Chicago. That, that, yeah, that, that's my that's my best winning. I won two thousand at another tournament, so I, my total prize winnings are probably seven thousand dollars or something like that. So it's not uh, these aren't big money tournaments. Although it's getting a little bigger, this um, the big tournament in Pittsburgh I went to this summer. We had a thousand uh, competitors. So Bowen started this tournament nine years ago with one hundred and seventy two players, and it's now up to one thousand players. Each year it becomes the world's largest tournament. And uh, next year it might be might be more. So it is growing. People are starting to catch on. So even though it was a dinosaur and it was dying, there's uh, something changing. There's just a small groundswell, and it's not the video game one with the you know the the modern uh, gladiators playing in front of you know esports stadiums. It's not that, but it is uh, it is uh, growth, and there is more excitement, and there's more manufacturers, and there's more games, and there's more. There's every week I look at the websites and see different pinball bars opening up and so uh i'm uh i'm loving the fact that people are starting to realize this game is still fun and they're using uh advancements to increase your you know movie clips and good audio and magnets and ramps and craziness so it's taken the the same game and it's just making it more interesting and i, I can't get enough of it so it's a there's a whole bunch of interesting characters in the in the game do you have a go-to pinball machine, like one you just sort of I gravitate toward a game that in particular? Mine, mine used to be something like Dreamweaver or something. It was, it was like from the 70s. Um, my favorite game is probably uh, Medieval Madness from uh, 1997. It's kind oh, okay. Of a it's kind of a take on uh it's kind of like Monty Python it's kind of irreverent and they took our shoes they took our historical monuments they took our pinball machine <laughs> it's just a, it's just a bunny <laughs> oh my yeah. god yeah. Uh, it's, got, it's got big teeth <laughs> when that would get to yeah <laughs> did you ever play Deadpool the, the arcade game uh, the, the the pinball machine Deadpool 
Uh, it's in my base. It's in my basement. So I don't know when you want to oh. come over and play. Oh, I've got you're the best, man. Got Deadpool, got Star Wars. Or what else is down? Game of Thrones is uh, down there. The Walking Dead is down there. We got a Ghostbusters game now based on that great film. So they're they're taking all these cool things from the '80s and bringing them back. And yeah, you gotta you gotta come play. It's 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 yeah. really fun. Uh, <laughs> um, I was gonna t- uh, I was gonna tell you, um, Bainbridge Island. Is that where you live? Yeah, Bain, Bainbridge Island, a little cottage community you know, away from Seattle. Yeah, it's my one of my fondest memories uh, during the '96 finals. Um, the the uh, Seattle SuperSonics, Gary Payton and Sean Kemp in that group, uh, were kind enough to steal the two game, the last two games in Seattle when we thought they were going to get swept, and they ended up losing in six, of course. But they had to, but because we. Uh, stayed in Seattle for a few more days. I think it was me, Frank Isola from the at the time the New York Daily News, and I was at the New York Times. All the, we and uh, we just we just took a ferry over to Bainbridge Island, rented bikes, went to wineries. Oh my God, this thing's like a, a paradise away from the mainland. It was incredible. Yeah, it's a really fantastic community, and that seems like the secret is out. So there's a, you know there's a lot of growth, and people are are moving here, and then you know traffic's getting a little. Little worse, and so uh, you know you're you're stopped at a. You got to be careful though, because uh, you know there's all these. It's just it's just it's changing a little bit. People are starting to cut each other off, and you're like, hey, you you son of a. Oh, you're the you're you're my daughter. You're my daughter's class. Hi, we'll see you on the play date on Thursday. <laughs> like you got to be careful because you you'll yell at people, and you're like, oh, that's that's the principal of my kid's school. So I better watch it. So uh, yeah, it's it's cool. Wineries, we got a brewery and. And uh, yeah, oh, Bainbridge really, really exploded. Well, there was almost nothing there when I was when, when I was last there. It's uh, it's it's growing. So I I do I uh, do love it here. I like being one of the like being one of the locals, just uh, interacting with the with the nice folks here. It's a great do, place to live. Very very. Do you ideal. do any salmon fishing? I do. I uh, I oh. go up with uh, with my pops. He lives on Vancouver Island, and he's got a he's got a, a fishing boat. And uh, oh. I used to do. I used to uh, talk to uh, Todd Wright, and uh, he was um, doing some some basketball analysis, and I, I was be on my boat with my dad, and he's like, "What, are you, son? You know, you're out here fishing. You can't be doing uh, sports interviews." I'm like, "Come on, dad. There's like eight hours of time in between the fish catching here." And so, uh, I caught a bald eagle with him uh, once a couple of years ago. We were up fishing on uh, off of Vancouver Island, and I had a little swimmer. That's a little salmon on your line that, uh, you know, you catch by accident and this bald eagle thought that looked pretty tasty. So he's trying to get at my, my swimmer on the end of my line. I'm trying to move my rod so he doesn't get it, but the eagles are and you smart. hooked him? You hooked him? Well, he hooked himself. So he's trying to get my little fish that I'm trying to get off my line and I'm trying to whip it around to, so he can avoid it, but he's smart. And he sees when I whip the rod, where the fish ends up. So he fakes like he's going for it. I whip it and he grabs this little salmon with my hook still in it and starts uh-huh. flying off. I'm like, Dad, I got a bald eagle. He's like, Son, we'll go to jail for that. So uh, fortunately, he grabbed the uh, he grabbed the rod, and the fish was like, or the uh, bird decided that this little salmon shouldn't have weighed about 800 pounds, and decided there's something fishy about this. Let him go. <laughs> and I fortunately, the, the bald eagle flew. Oh, uh, that's true. We used to we used to clean our salmon guts and throw them off the boat, and the bald eagles would come right behind us and eat them. We when we were catching can Alaska once, my dad and me, it was it was incredible. Uh, yeah, I know. I just found out in the states you can get a. Uh, let's see, what is it? Five thousand fine and up to a year in prison for killing a bald eagle. But I mean, if it was an accident and he and he and you could prove that he took the bait, 
I don't, I don't see how they Canada. could put you in prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you yeah, were in Canada. It's not even we a national burden. Yeah, we got a lot of. What's there's the national bird there. in Canada? The the the, the, the mosquito. The mosquito. Okay. All right. Yeah, there's a lot of those bad boys. <laughs> Don McCulloch is my guest. Uh, he could obviously do his own podcast and stand up. I feel like I'm just basically the warm up act for him every time he speaks. Um, he uh, he had four thousand five hundred eighty nine five hundred ninety nine points in the NBA. Average ten point six per game. Four point two rebounds. Was for Matt in my book. An invaluable center, the time that he spent with the 76ers and the Nets. And I, I just remember the shoot. It must have been the 2001 finals when when basically Larry Brown was throwing you guys out there like uh, Dikembe Matambo, Todd McCullough. Who else was on your roster that was seven foot? Uh, we had Matt Geiger. Matt Geiger. Know, Ty- Tyrone Hill, Nazi Muhammad. And it was all, and, it was, and the whole thing was like, let's just not get emasculated by Shaquille O'Neal in the finals. Let's let's just say, and and I tell you what, I love Shaq. I think he's a great guy. He got away with murder in those finals. He was <laughs> he was ducking his shoulder into everybody. Uh, he, you know, he he's good at what he does, and we were trying to, you know, try to throw different bodies at him. And I I I think it was. Uh, one of those one of those games, and I was sitting on the bench next to Pepe Sanchez, uh, the great Argentinian who played at Temple, and we're sitting there, and, and, and Shaq is mowing through all of our big guys. He's getting them all in foul trouble, and Pepe's like, hey, Todd, are you ready? Yeah, you got to get ready. You're going to go in there, and uh, Shaq's going to hurt you. Be careful. I'm like, what do you mean he's not going to hurt me? It's not the it's not the MMA. It's basketball. He might dunk on me, but he's not going to hurt me. He's like, no, nah, I think he's going to hurt you. I'm like, Todd, get in there. So I get in for Geiger, and then I'm in perfect rebounding position on the far side of the rim ball comes up and I'm textbook I got him on my back I'm, I'm figuring out the physics of where this ball is going to come out and I jump up to get it and he jumps up quicker higher gets the ball comes down with an elbow and inadvertently pinches a nerve in the Vulcan death grip in my in my neck I go down to the ground he dunks on someone else gets the and one the coach is yelling, Todd what do you do I stand up with a pinched neck and I'm like sorry coach what with and Pepe's like I told you he'd hurt you like Pepe you shut up sorry coach what were you saying so Shaq by by accident he uh he came down he was a he was a class act and it just most guys you have to i joke about this with my kids a little bit most guys you have to uh, counter like if you make a move if, and you run into a big guy like myself yeah you gotta maybe spin or or you know elijah on and you know do the dream shake but Shaq, he's just like i'm coming I'm coming, I'm sliding, I'm shifting, and you can't you can't stop him from shimmying in because I'm pushing as hard as I can with all my all my mass and I can't slow down his progress and then you end up under the rim and then he just dunks on you and it's like he's playing he's playing a different game where he doesn't need a a counter. I mean he had counters and he could go and so I, I can't remember who I was playing as. It was somebody else, and they were making a quick move, and they, you, you make that counter, and then you come back. And I still hadn't reacted to the first one. So he made a move and then a counter that I hadn't reacted to, and then he came back thinking it was a double counter, and I was still standing there from the first time. And the guy was like, this guy's all over me. He's an amazing defender. And my son likes the fact that I, ne- I never left. I'm still here from the first move. If you'd taken the second move, you would have left me in the dust. Uh, uh... Tom McCulloch's my guest. He's been great. He's got a, we got a few more minutes with him. I just I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what was the condition that caused you to retire just as you were making big money and establishing yourself as a as a real legit NBA center. Um, there was there was some different um, 
um, different diagnoses. Um, you know, one of the one of them that was uh, uh, Charcot-Marie Tooth was one that was uh, suggested. I, I don't think that was actually the uh, mm. uh, you know the genetic uh, uh, neuropathy. I, I basically, I have uh, uh, neuropathy in both feet from a from an unknown cause, and so I don't think it has a genetic uh, component to it. And neuropathy affects a lot of a lot of different people and and comes on for a lot of different reasons. And it was sort of uh, we weren't able to figure out exactly what um, what brought it on. And, and the, the neuropathy is it's almost a numbness in the foot, or it's a, yeah, num- a numbness, uh, numbness in some areas, and burning in some other ones, and just kind yeah. of a, a general discomfort where the the nerves and the soles of your feet are not uh, transmitting the proper information. So I I once actually stepped on a small pinball light bulb and had some shards of glass stuck in my foot in a flip-flop and I went to physical therapy and she said, do you want me to take this shard of glass out of the body of your foot? I'm like, well, I don't feel it, but, uh, you know, for in case of infections, you might want to, I want to remove it. So a a real decreased sensitivity and it makes a, it makes it very uncomfortable as well as makes balance a, a real problem. And so, uh, yeah, I just I'm not feeling the sensations on the bottom of my feet like I like I should or like you'd need to to be at the top of your top of your game. Mm. Um, obviously, one of your teammates was Alan Iverson, who is probably the most beloved player, uh, not only of his size, but just because he's so uh, everything. All every time he talks lately, it feels like a cathartic moment. And I remember his Hall of Fame speech. People are crying. It was just a confessional. And it was like it was absolved of all these whatever you call sins against the game, against society. You lo- you come from a completely different world. Tall, uh, uh, six six eleven uh, six eleven white guy from from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and a guy from Hampton Roads, a young African American player. And yet you bonded with that guy, didn't you? I I love that guy, and I I didn't know what he would be like, and. Uh... Yeah, he was a he was a special uh, he was a special player. He was a special person, and he wasn't afraid to be who he was. And I think he, you know, real is a word that really describes him. And I think when you when you know who you are, and you and you like who you are, and you have that kind of talent, I think people are attracted to you, and people want to be around you. They want to be your teammate. You know, the the fans loved him, the teammates loved him, and uh, you know he was a he was an incredible person and just somebody that was a ton of fun i mean he would always keep it uh, keep it light keep it fun and he would all but he would always play with a fiery he absolutely hated to lose you know he was such a such an incredible competitor it, it absolutely killed him to to lose but i mean we'd be we'd be running around and warm up and he just he just made the game so much fun mm-hmm. trying to uh, keep up with them and uh, you know he didn't always like getting uh, he didn't always like getting screens he kind of liked a little bit of I mean I he, he he was he was improvising a lot of the time and he was just such an incredible talent you kind of had to let him do it but sometimes I was trying to play by the book and if we were doing the the second the you know the the primary the offense and secondary I'd run down and I'm supposed to set up at the top of the key but I you know, I ended up like running right into Iverson he's he's at the top of the key breaking down his defender about to blow by him and here comes a lumbering Todd McCulloch running to the spot where I was supposed to and I run into him trip him falls and we turn over he's like Todd what are you doing I'm like I'm running the play I don't I don't know I, I'm sorry I ran into you I uh, I apologize so you you had to figure out just how to let him fly and and uh, do his thing because he he was he was virtually unguardable with that. Uh, with that quick step and the ability to pull up and hit a jump shot, I mean, he would. He, there were so many ways he could uh, he could burn you. If I'm correct, you were. Um, I think you were with the Nets already when he did his famous "We talking about practice" rant. Do you remember seeing it? What you thought at the time? 
I I loved it. I was I was I was with the Nets. So I was with them the year before that, and then I was gone for that year, and then I I came yeah. back, and I I remember you know they 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 played it a lot then, and they they still played a lot. And I remember watching in the locker room when it came on. It was like some of the best. Uh, press conferences from last year and, and just a big smile on his face and everyone was kind of kind of ribbing him about it and, you know we're sitting here talking about practice not a game not a game we're sitting here talking about practice you guys want me to lift weights man I, I won the MVP last year bony as heck <laughs> uh, all right real quick fire uh, I'm gonna do a um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a lightning round because we only have a couple of minutes left with Todd McCulloch all right here we go uh, and you could it could be one word answer, whatever you're feeling at the time. Um, I'm just going to, it's going to be word association. Let's see. Um, Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, unstoppable. Allen Iverson. Real. Hmm. Okay. Um, Mike Wise. Brilliant. <laughs> I love this guy. You got to, you know, you got to run my burner account on Twitter. This is true good. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Steve Nash. Um, the best. Is that two words? The best. That's fine. Um, that's fine. Um, oh, shoot. Dave Chappelle, whose show you were on once, by the way. <laughs> Are you, uh, do you have time for that story? Yes, I do. Okay. So here's, here's the, uh, here's the story. Uh, I have a friend named Craig Gass, who's a very funny man and a, and a very funny comedian. And we've been friends for a long time since uh, our Seattle days. And, uh, he said, Hey, uh, I'm in New York now and I'm doing, I'm doing stand up, and I'm performing at the Boston comedy club. And, um, I'm wondering if uh, you and any of your teammates want to come out and for a great night of comedy, I said, Hey, I will, I'm there and my wife is there and my friend Pepe Sanchez is there and his girlfriend at the time. And, uh, and I'll see who else wants to come. And, and it was just, you know, me and my wife and Pepe and his girlfriend and Craig's like, yeah, should we get some uh, dinner before? So we go to a nice restaurant and, and I tell Craig like, Hey, you know, I've, I've seen his act and I love his act. So I'm telling him like, Hey, do your, do your Yoda. And he's like, Hmm, strong you are. Hmm, the force is strong in you. So, uh, so I'm doing my impression of his Yoda. And then I'm like, do your, do your Sean Connery. And he's like, yes, are you ready for the gold finger? So I'm doing, you know, his impressions. So I, I'm doing like the bit, my favorite parts of his act. So he's basically done it again. And now it's a great dinner. He's super entertaining. And it's like, all right, guys, I'm, I'm about to be on stage. So, uh, so let's, let's go. We need to head up to Greenwich village. All right. So we go in there and there's a woman up, up on stage doing stand-up comedy. And there is one, a couple in the audience. That's it. There's two people and uh, there's no energy. There's no atmosphere. There's, there's nothing. And Craig is sort of horrified that he's sort of promised this this amazing night of comedy and there's just no atmosphere and he's about to go on stage and he's just done, basically done his whole act at dinner for the four of us and he's freaking out and he's like oh man i need oh and then the woman's up on stage and she's just killing time and she's like so uh let's see what else is going on the uh, knicks are going to kick the crap out of the sixers tomorrow night and the owner goes hey uh just so you know these guys play for the sixers and she's like oh that's my time i'll see you guys later and she leaves the stage and Craig's like, I need a smoke. I, I need a smoke. So he goes outside to smoke and de-stress and uh, somebody rolls down the window of a car that's parked in front of there and says, hey, but buddy, can I get a light? And he's like, yeah, sure. And it turns out to be Dave Chappelle. And he's like, Dave Chappelle, he's like, yeah. He's like, dude, you got to help me out. I promised a good night to my friends on the Sixers. Will you please get up there and do a little stand-up? He's like, yeah, let me finish my cigarette. I'll be right in. So Dave Chappelle came in and did about four. Wait, 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 wait. Chappelle's just driving by the comedy club? 
or just parked there. He was oh, just, just parked you know, there. Parked, okay. He was just parked there out out uh, out front. Yeah. So he gets up and does about 45 minutes of uh, impromptu comedy and just you know w- was incredible. And uh, so he and Craig became friends. And he said, Hey, I've got a, a skit coming out next year. And wondering if uh, maybe you know Todd wanted to be a part of it. And so he, I was like, Yeah, of course I want to be in a Dave Chappelle skit. And uh, and then I you know I read the script and I'm like, Oh, this seems a little seems a little risque for uh for me for this little canadian boy so i'm gonna tell people, what it, tell people what it was it was a skit essentially where african-americans get their reparations uh, right so they don't they don't need to show up for those week's games so the sixers uh, are the, playing the knicks so it's todd mcculloch versus travis knight one-on-one and i win like 59 57 and i get interviewed after and i was like so is there anything different i'm like yeah i get to touch the ball a little more is there anything else you notice i'm like yeah I, now i finally feel like i have a big penis and, uh, he's, like, he's like, "Welcome to the club, buddy." Oh, that's great. That's that was good. Great. Uh, that, 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 see, that was that, that's push the envelope comedy that you, you can't you can't make up. Oh, th- this has been great. I can't I can't thank you for enough. Uh, I can't thank you for this enough. Uh, when when Bruce Bernstein and I say we're going to play um, pinball with you at some point, that would be great. I can I ask you just one more thing before you go? Sure. Okay. Um, at one point, I heard, I, I think it was either on one of our podcasts or another that was just hilarious when when you, you talked about how Kevin Garnett destroyed uh, the confidence of Nicholas Skidavilli. And uh, and I remember, I, I, I just want to, what exactly happened there? If you can, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, uh, I don't know that, that story. I'm not, that's not yeah. ringing any bells. Uh, okay. That there was, I'm trying to think, Bruce, am, am I wrong on this? Um, uh, Mike, wanna... you're, Mike, you were the one who told the story about Schizzavilli coming out as a rookie and Garnett absolutely emasculating him and destroying his confidence forever. But I believe Todd had a story about how KG tried to play some head games with him by making certain noises. Oh, that's noises. right. That's right. That, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, it was. Uh... What would he do? Uh, he just was making these animal sounds like he was, like he was fierce and it was kind of freaking me out because I hadn't heard anybody, you know, trash talk with, with animal growling sounds. And so it was a really important inbound pass from the baseline. And I'm, I'm the, I'm the outlet at the, at my own free throw line. And he's like, there's no way you catch this pass. No, there's no way. I'm like, "Ah, you're probably right. You're freaking me out right now. So, uh, yeah, he was, uh, it was a, a different form of, uh, different form of trash talk. Uh, I missed that. I missed that NBA. Uh, thanks for getting up with us early. This this was great, man. And I, I'm telling you, I know you. You probably tried this. You've done it. If you're not, if you're not doing stand up or podcast, man, you well, you well, you got other hobbies and you got a life and you got kids. But but I think I think you're really funny and good. I just uh, it'd be great. It'd, it'd be it'd be a pleasure to see you take that act somewhere else. Because I think you have so many stories and they're just real and it's not even things you make up. Well, thank you. That's really, it's really nice of you to, nice of you to say. So we'll see, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. But uh, these, uh, these little kids are, are uh, taking up a lot of time right now. Yeah, and you know what? I'm the same way. I don't care. That it's overwhelming, but it's awesome. So yeah, so, that's yeah. that's a good way to describe it. It's busy, but it's amazing. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks to Todd McCulloch for his great stories and his time. Thanks also to one of my 500 best friends in the whole world, producer Bruce Bernstein. Thanks also to our ace editor, Ben Wolfen, for making me sound better than James Earl Jones, because 
America's rolled by like an army of steamrollers, erased like a blackboard. But basketball, Ray, basketballs remain the constant. <laughs> Please check out all the Pure Hoops media shows. Catch and shoot each Wednesday. Buckets, boards, and blocks with Monica McNutt each Thursday. The Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman drops on Friday. And of course, the Mike Wise show each Monday. Please rate, review, download, subscribe, tell your friends, and enjoy. Peace out. Aloha. And hasta la vista, baby. See ya. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.